All right, let's pray as we get ready to uh, look into the word for our scripture reading and for our sermon. Lord, the scriptures themselves testify in the book of Hebrews that your word is alive and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Your word judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. As we prepare to receive your word this morning, Father, we ask that you would speak even into our deepest parts. We ask that you would indeed judge the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. But most of all, we pray that you'd remind us of just how much you love each and every one of us here, each one of us who's listening right now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of Jude. Jude is the second to last book of the Bible, right before Revelation. It's very short, just one chapter long, one of the shortest books in the Bible. And we're going to be looking at the final few verses from verses 17 to the end of the book, verse 25. And again, I want to encourage you to keep your Bibles open or your Bible app on your mobile device open even after we finish a scripture reading because we'll be referring back to the passage several times. I will show some other verses and readings on the slides, but the text itself that we'll be reading will not be shown, so keep your Bibles open. I want to make sure that we're referring again and again to God's Word itself. That is the basis of whatever truth is proclaimed from here. Jude, chapter 1, verses 17 to 25. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. This is God's word. Well, I am glad that our youth group will be having their bowling fellowship after church today. I hope you all have a great time. Hope nobody gets hurt. No sports injuries, please. I also saw in Pastor Noah's email announcement from last week that the dates for the youth group winter retreat have been set. June 14th through 15th, 2022. That's Friday and Saturday of MLK weekend, Martin Luther King weekend. Mark your calendars, folks, June 14th and 15th. The retreat will be held at the Ministry Center. Our students will not be sleeping overnight, but they will be spending 
a lot of time together in worship, in learning God's word, and in fellowship. And of course, we will keep a close eye on the COVID numbers and we will make any necessary adjustments if we need to. But the plan for now is to meet in person and we're hoping it'll be a great time. You know, retreats are one of my favorite memories from my own youth group days. And I went to a lot of retreats and a lot of revival meetings back then. And by the way, do our youth group students here even know what revival meetings are? I realized as I was preparing this that they're not nearly as common nowadays as they were back in the day. Well, revival meetings back in the day were kind of like retreats. They were usually hosted by a church over three nights, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, or maybe Friday, Saturday, Sunday, They were all the rage back then, these revival meetings. And I remember going to many of these events with our youth group. We'd attend at least a Friday night session together. You know, we'd get in the van and drive over to the church that was hosting it. But if you're really into it, you went all three nights. These retreats and revival meetings usually had really exciting worship, really powerful sermons, and really intense times of prayer. Those experiences left a deep impression on my life as a high school kid. In fact, most of my memories are still positive, even to this day. But there's one part of these events that I remember not liking quite as much. Many of these retreats or revival meetings featured something called an altar call. What is that, you might ask? Well, an altar call was when the guest speaker or the pastor would invite anyone who wanted to become a Christian right then and there to identify themselves. Sometimes they'd ask you to silently raise your hand while everybody else was praying with their heads bowed and their eyes closed. And sometimes they'd ask for more. They'd invite you to stand up from where you were and come up to the front so that the speaker or the pastor or one of the other leaders could pray for you. Now, I grew up in a Christian home. And I had been going to church for as long as I could remember. And I had heard the gospel and even gotten baptized when I was in elementary school. But when I went to these retreats or revival meetings later on, the speakers would often say things like, you may have been going to church for a long time. Some of you might even be leaders in your youth group. Your parents, your dad might be the pastor. You might be an elder's kid, missionary kid. But that doesn't necessarily mean you're a Christian. Maybe you came to this event last year and you might have even raised your hand when the speaker asked if you wanted to accept Jesus into your heart. That was the phrase, accept Jesus into your heart. Maybe you raised your hand and maybe you didn't really mean it back then, but you're sure now. If that's true, I want you to come up to the front. doesn't matter if you came up last year. Come up to the front because you need to be absolutely sure that you're saved. We're talking about your eternal destiny here. I can't remember how many times I raised my hand or went up to the front at those meetings, but I'm pretty sure it was more than once. Like, I got saved many times. As you can guess, many of these retreats and revival meetings were really high on emotions, but the teaching and theology wasn't always the greatest. When I look back now, I know I was a Christian long before I started going to these events. I had believed that Jesus died on the cross to save me, and I genuinely trusted in him as my Savior, and I knew deep down that God loved me. 
But I just wasn't sure back in those days that God would keep on loving me. Last week, Pastor Seung preached on the book of life from Philippians chapter 4. And if you did not get a chance to hear that sermon, I strongly encourage you to go onto our website and give it a listen. In some ways, today will be the other side of the coin of last week's sermon. Pastor Seung spoke about our personal experience of knowing that we're saved. Christians often describe this confidence as our assurance of salvation. And I'll be talking about that today as well, but coming from a slightly different angle. You know, I learned about the book of life in my Sunday school days, but by the time I became a youth group student, I used to wonder if God ever thought that he had made a mistake with me. Oh, Brian committed that sin again. He messed up again. That's it. I'm crossing his name off. Now, whether you're one of our youth group students or even among our adults here, if you've ever felt that way, I hope this message will be encouraging for you. We're going to consider three topics that Jude brings up in our passage today. First, we're going to look at the reminder. The reminder. Secondly, we'll talk about the directives. And then third and last, we'll finish with the promise. So we have the reminder, the directives, and the promise. Okay, let's start with the reminder. Now, if you have your Bible still open, which I hope you do, or your apps open, if you look with me at verse 17, we'll see that Jude gives an important reminder to his readers. In verse 17 and 18, he says, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. If you heard the previous two sermons in this miniseries on this short book, then you're probably aware that one of the reasons Jude wrote this letter was to warn these churches about a serious threat. We saw this in the opening paragraph after his greeting. Back in verses 3 and 4, again, if you have your Bibles open, in verses 3 and 4 he wrote, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And Jude here was sounding the alarm to warn his readers about the threat of false teaching. He mentioned some folks who had apparently crept into these churches and they were not part of the fellowship. In fact, according to verse 12, if you look there, these folks were even participating in the church's love feasts. You might see that phrase there in verse 12, and many scholars believe those words, love feast, refers to the sacrament of communion. So these false teachers were participating in communion. They claimed to be Christians. But their everyday lives told a different story. Back in verse 4, Jude described these so-called believers as ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny 
our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. What these false teachers were saying was, well, Christians are saved by grace, so that means we can live however we want. Our salvation, in other words, gives us a blank check to do whatever we'd like, including even sinning in horrible ways. Now, the fancy theological term for this kind of thinking is called antinomianism. That sounds like a complicated word, but that word, antinomianism, literally means anti or against lawism. Antinomianism is the exact opposite of the other error that Christians often make, what we call legalism. Legalism says we must obey God's law so that he will accept us. But antinomianism says God's law is totally irrelevant for the Christian life. If legalism says that God's law means everything, antinomianism says that God's law means nothing. Both of these attitudes miss the mark. R.C. Sproul, a theologian and author, gets it right when he writes, we are saved by faith alone apart from works. However, all believers grow in faith by keeping God's holy commands. Not to gain God's favor, but out of loving gratitude for the grace already bestowed on them through the work of Christ. Evidently, the false teachers in Jude's day did not hold to this view. And so Jude wrote this letter to warn these churches to be on the lookout. These folks may claim that they're believers, but their teaching and their lives say otherwise. And if any of them tell you that God's grace allows us to live however we want, that's a major red flag. And according to verse 17, these Christians shouldn't be surprised when they hear such false teaching. Jude is simply repeating a warning that other apostles had given about the danger of false teaching. The apostle Peter, for example, warned in one of his letters that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own desires. The apostle Paul similarly warned the elders in the church of Ephesus that after he left, savage wolves would come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw disciples after them. So as Jude, near the end of his letter, he felt he needed to give this important reminder to his readers about the threat of false teaching. As I've mentioned in my previous sermons in this letter, false teaching is a threat for every generation in the church. What that means for us is that we need to know what we believe and we need to know why we believe it. And again, this is one of the reasons why we include things like, well, sermons, of course, but even creeds and confessions and catechisms as a regular part of our Sunday services. It's why our youth group and our RCC Kids Ministries devotes a lot of time in their regular meetings to not only worship and fellowship, but also to Bible lessons and Bible studies. Because it's these things that help us know what we believe and why we believe it, so that we can be alert to any false teaching that constantly endangers the church. Well, that's the reminder. 
Let's move on to the next part, the commands or the directives. The directives. We see the directives in verses 20 to 23. If you look there with me again, starting in verse 20, Jude says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Keep the passage open, please, uh, for this part. Now, according to a New Testament scholar named Doug Moo, Doug Moo was one of my former seminary professors. He teaches now over at Wheaton. According to Doug Moo, Jude offers no less than seven directives in these four verses. And if we go in reverse order, starting in verses 22 to 23, the final three directives focus on the way that we as believers need to care for three groups of people. First, we're to care for believers who are struggling with doubt. We see that in verse 22. Second, we're to care for believers who have been caught in the trap of false teaching. We see that in the first part of verse 23. And third, and last, the final directive, we're to care even for the false teachers themselves. We see that in the second half of verse 23. And you know, some of us might be puzzled by that strange phrase at the end of the verse there, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. According to Doug Moo, the stain actually refers to human excrement. I'm talking about the stuff that we see in the toilet after we're finished doing our business. And, you know, some of us might be shocked that graphic language like that shows up in the Bible, but I think that's the point. The point here is that false teaching isn't just dangerous. False teaching actually disgusts. God. In his commentary, Doug Moo writes, the false teachers are producing teaching and behavior that is offensive to God. And Jude is saying here it should be equally offensive to believers. They should naturally hate such conduct. Even then, as they act in mercy toward those who have fallen, praying that the Lord may bring them back, they must not overlook in any way the terrible and destructive behavior these people are engaged in. Now again, we're going in reverse order with these directives. We started with the final three, so let's move on to the first four. What are the first four directives? Well, according to verse 20, we're to build ourselves up in the most holy faith. That's directive number one. Second, we're to pray in the Holy Spirit. We see that from the second part of verse 20. Third, we're to keep ourselves in the love of God. That comes from the first part of verse 21. And fourth, we're to keep waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. We see that in the second half of verse 21. So we're to build ourselves up in the faith, we're to pray in the Spirit, keep ourselves in God's love, and wait for the mercy of Christ that leads to eternal life. You know, in some ways, these four directives can be summed up with Pastor Seong's encouragement to us in his sermon last week. 
keep calm, and carry on. Y'all remember hearing that? Keep calm and carry on. In other words, we simply need to continue practicing the habits and disciplines that allow us to grow in our faith and in our knowledge of God. This isn't spiritual rocket science. This is what we call sanctified common sense. And the thing is, all true believers will do this over the long haul. We may stumble, we may even take a few steps backward here and there, but our lifelong journey will reveal an overall pattern of following these directives in increasing measure. Scholars often describe this reality with the phrase they call the perseverance of the saints. The theologian named Wayne Grudem gives a helpful definition of this doctrine. He writes, the perseverance of the saints means that all those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives, and that only those who persevere until the end have been truly born again. Now, to repeat what I said earlier, all true Christians will follow these first four directives in our passage over the long haul. All true Christians will build themselves up in the faith. All true Christians will pray in the Spirit. All true Christians will keep themselves in God's love. And all true Christians will wait patiently for Jesus to return and bring the gift of eternal life. Now again, we can expect to experience dry seasons or wilderness periods where we may not live out these directives consistently. And maybe some of us are going through that right now, especially with this pandemic season. But we're talking about the long haul here. Over the long haul, all true Christians persevere in their faith. Their lives are marked by slow and steady and increasing obedience to these four directives. Now, there's one other detail I want to mention here. All of these directives in verses 20 and 21 are in the plural form. We are to build ourselves up together in the most holy faith. We are to pray together in the Spirit. We are to keep ourselves in God's love together, and we're to wait together for the mercy of Christ that will be ours in fullness when Jesus comes back. I put this a different way. Perseverance is a group project. If we really want to keep calm and carry on, we'll need the encouragement of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, the reason I bring this up is because even now, when I look at who's here, we actually have quite a good turnout today. It's, it's great to see you all here in person. But we still have so many friends who aren't with us. You know, I know some of us have made the difficult decision to stay home and join us online because you're trying to be extra careful with this pandemic, and that's your way of loving us, and we thank you for that. And I know some of us are also choosing to stay home because maybe we have kids who are too young to get vaccinated. Again, we understand and respect your decision. But I also know there are some of us who are choosing to stay home because COVID has now become a convenient excuse for us to withdraw 
and isolate ourselves from the family of God, from the church. You're sending your kids to school. You're going into work. You're attending indoor birthday parties. You're shopping at Costco and Target. But you're not coming to church. You know, this is very hard for me to say, but I need to say it as your pastor. You need to come back. You need to be here. Some of you are struggling in your faith, and you know it. And so if you are watching or listening to this later on or sometime later in the week, please come back. We miss you. And we love you. And you need to be here for your sake and for our sake, and not just when you're serving. Please come back. Perseverance is a group project. We need you, and you need us, if we're all going to keep calm and carry on. Well, we looked at the reminder, we've looked at the directives, let's finish with the promise. The promise. You know, one of the interesting details about this short letter is the way that Jude seems to teach two opposing realities at the same time. If you look, for example, at the very beginning in verse 1, Jude starts with a greeting that was pretty common for many letters in the New Testament. It says, Jude a servant of Christ and brother of James. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Now that phrase at the end there, kept for Jesus Christ, that seems to state a fact or reality. Genuine believers are those who are loved by God and kept for Jesus. Now, if we wanted a better idea of what Jude has in mind when he says that true Christians are kept for Jesus, we could say that they are guarded or they are protected or preserved by him or for him. But if that's true, then why does Jude give that directive later in verse 21 when he tells us that we should keep ourselves in the love of God? So we're kept for Jesus Christ, verse 2, but we should keep ourselves in the love of God, verse 21. Now it may seem that Jude is contradicting himself here, but I think it's better to see these seeming contradictions as different sides of the same coin. We also saw this in Dr. Wayne Grudem's definition that I quoted earlier. It says, The perseverance of the saints means that all those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power, and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives. And that only those who persevere until the end have been truly born again. So he talks in the second half about how only those who persevere until the end have been truly born again. But before he says that, he mentions very clearly that all those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power. I put it more simply, we need to do all we can to hold on to God. And again, perseverance is a group project. But as the weeks and as the months and as the years go by, we'll realize sooner or later that the only reason we've been holding on to God 
is because he's been holding on to us. And his grip is much stronger than ours. Any parent of a young child has experienced this, whether it's just this past week you experienced it, or maybe sometime this past year, or maybe it was 10 to 20 years ago or longer. But you remember what it was like. You might have been carrying your kid in your arms as you were walking somewhere, or maybe you were holding his or her hand as you went into the water together at the kiddie pool or at the beach. At some point, you felt their little hands holding on to you more tightly because they were nervous that they might slip or fall. They got scared. But we knew, you knew, that would never happen because you were holding on to them. And you knew they were safe in your arms. And that's exactly the point that Jude makes in the final verses of his letter. If he started in the beginning by reminding his readers that were kept for Jesus Christ in verse 1, he wants to end with the same reminder in this beautiful doxology that we read in verses 24 and 25. If you look there with me, he says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Now again, we may experience those slumps here and there. We might be going through some tough life circumstances, and God may seem like He's far away, and we may have chosen to isolate ourselves from our church community, and maybe we're even trapped by a habitual sin that has left us in a state of despair. The Westminster Confession of Faith describes these slumps as falling into grievous sins and for a time continuing in them. During these slumps, we may even experience God's temporary displeasure as we grieve His Holy Spirit. We even sense that some measure of His graces and comforts have been taken away from us. But the three most important words in all of this is for a time. It's only a season. And it may even be a prolonged season, but a season does not define your life. At some point, you realize you are like Peter and not Judas because you eventually come back. And when you come back, you also realize that Jesus never let you go. As verse 24 in our passage promises, he will keep you from stumbling and he will present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. In other words, you never have to worry that he will cross your name out of the book of life. It just won't happen. You know, I mentioned in a previous sermon that Jude was one of Jesus' half-brothers, like Jesus' other and perhaps more famous half-brother, James, 
Jude did not become a believer himself until after the resurrection. But he had to have been familiar with many of Jesus' teachings. And one of Jesus' most comforting teachings comes from his promise that we read in John chapter 6, verse 37, where he says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. An author and a fellow pastor here in Naperville named Dane Ortland offers some very reassuring thoughts on this one verse from his recent book called Gentle and Lowly. He writes, we are talking about something deeper than the doctrine of eternal security or once saved, always saved. A glorious doctrine, a true doctrine, sometimes called the perseverance of the saints. He says, we have come more deeply to the doctrine of the perseverance of the heart of Christ. Yes, professing Christians can fall away, proving that they were never truly in Christ. Yes, once a sinner is united to Christ, there's nothing that can disunite them. But within the skeletal structure of these doctrines, what is the beating heart of God made tangible in Christ? What is most deeply instinctive to him is our sins and sufferings pile up. What keeps him from growing cold? The answer is his heart. The atoning work of the Son, decreed by the Father and applied by the Spirit, ensures that we are safe eternally. But a text such as John 6.37, or we could also say Jude 24 and 25, reassures us that this is not only a matter of divine decree, but divine desire. This is heaven's delight. Come to me, says Christ. I will embrace you into my deepest being and never let you go. He will never let you go. He will never let you go. If you are truly His, then He will hold on to you. Even during, especially during those slump seasons, He will hold on to you. My fellow brothers and sisters, you are kept for Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for this reminder that this isn't just a truth or a doctrine or a reality that we're talking about here as glorious as it is that those who are truly born again will persevere to the end because it is you who holds on to us. Lord, this is not just a decree or a doctrine or a truth. This is your very heart. We're thankful that you won't hold on to us simply because you have to. 
you won't hold on to us simply because, well, that's what you said you do and you want to keep your word. You will hold on to us because you want to. Because that is your heart for us, your people. Because you love each one of us more than we could ever imagine. So, what else can we say but thank you, Lord? What else can we do but rest in that great hope? And what else can we pray but, God, help us by your Spirit, by your grace, to live out these directives, to build ourselves up in the faith, to pray in your spirit, to keep ourselves in your love. And to wait together for the mercy of Christ that you will bring in fullness when you return. Lord, I want to pray especially for our friends who've been away for a while. Who we haven't seen, not just because they're trying to be careful or safe, but because we're struggling. We're in those slump seasons right now. Would you please help us to know, to know, Lord, your deep love for them, for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.